Hello everyone and welcome to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we talk about strange things that happen in history. I am your host this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Amelia Edwards. Now this has been uh, quite the week in in Britain land. Oh god, yes. Uh, We are recording on the week that Liz Truss became Prime Minister. Yep. And Queen Elizabeth II died, and we've now got King Charles III. Yeah, which... I mean, any king that is the third lends his name to an awkward thing. Mm, yeah. Like Richard. Richard. How was Henry the Third? I don't really know much about him. Henry the Third was Richard the Second's son. Oh, right. And he was a child king to start off with. Awkward. And he kind of is the reason why the uh, Magna Carta actually became a thing mm. because since he was young the barons could use it it was going to get kind of dropped otherwise oh right so that's what i know about henry the third oh, fair enough so i think he was okay oh, i wasn't really expecting to learn that much but okay <laughs> fair enough <laughs> get off my patch this is my episode uh, no i'm in teaching mode now that's fair that's fair because you are now back to school and i listeners i'm going to be starting a course in october what kind of course they ask? I am going to be doing a law degree. Ooh. And as such, I thought to celebrate that, as I've kind of started my prep for it now, mm-hmm. uh, I thought I would take a case from legal history. Ooh, exciting. Because one, <laughs> there's been a lot on my mind about sort of legal history at the moment, because one of the things that's happened with the death of Queen Elizabeth II is everyone who was QC, as in Queen's Council, has yeah. now become Casey. Oh, that's a girl's name, though. <laughs> Actually, it's... I teach a boy with that name. I apologise to all the male <laughs> Casey's out there. It's also, I believe, it's like Casey and the Sunshine Band, I think. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, a lot of lawyers on Twitter have been like, yes, we know. <laughs> oh, God. Did you hear about the Canadian citizenship people? No. So, it was in the news just today because some people were taking... were taking their Canadian citizenship graduation, like the ceremony. Yeah. And they have to pledge allegiance to the Queen. Oh. But they genuinely didn't know what to do. And they had to, like, postpone it. It was a Zoom thing because everything's on Zoom now. They had to postpone the ceremony because they genuinely didn't know what the wording should be to make it (laughs) official. Wow. Because it hasn't had to change in, like, 52 years. No, I know. It's amazing. More than that. Yeah, I know. Sorry, she was crowned in 70 years. years. 70 years. God. Yeah, pretty amazing. Um, But yes, uh, we're going to go away from that part and we are going to go back into legal history with actually our last female monarch, uh, Queen Victoria. Ooh. Or at least it's in the Victorian era. She does actually crop up right near the end. Ah, what a babe. I know. (laughs) But I've also noticed that I don't know if you've noticed, but recently we've had a a sort of vague maritime theme to things. We have talked about boats a lot. I think it's because weird things happen at sea, to be honest. They do, they do, which is why I think it was such a fertile ground for H.P. Lovecraft and his horror writing. Mm. Because the sea do be big and mysterious. It do be. Indeed. Even now. (laughs) Yeah. And there was, the legal system had a problem with the sea, Understandable. Well, it was a particular thing that would happen as a result of shipwrecks. What? Sorry, I was just imagining their problem with the sea being a bit like the Persian king Xerxes. Oh, when you got people to stab the sea? Yes. Yeah. But this time it's just with a gavel. (laughs) 
No, but there, there was a genuine legal question, and we'll get into that part of it. But I'm going to take you back to 1883. Ooh. And a man called John Henry Want travels from Australia to Britain in order to acquire a fancy yacht. <laughs> okay. John Want. That's a long way to go for your fancy yacht. It was, but... He was that sort of person. Uh, John Want, also known as Jack or Jimmy, Mm -hmm. was a bit of a larger-than-life figure. And I mean that kind of literally. He was over six foot tall. Whoa. He was handsome, and he was known for being flashy and flamboyant. Amazing. He was described as as honest and honourable as he was bluff and unconventional, a generous foeman and a true friend. Nice. Now, foeman there basically meaning enemy. Yeah. Because his main profession was a maritime lawyer. (laughs) Okay. But not just that, he also dabbled in politics. Yeah. But he never found a political party that was everything he wanted it to be. Rather than, like, put up with it and, you know, make the best of it or anything like that, frequently he would just leave, or in at least one case, he would found his own political party. (laughs) With blackjack and hookers. Yeah, exactly. Okay. He was also involved in commerce. Okay. And apparently in some shady ways, the nature right. of which I haven't been able to find out. All I could find was people referencing that this the, he was involved in some shady business. I couldn't actually find out what that shady business was. Okay, that's always awkward because it means they've read it somewhere and now yeah. we don't know if it's true or if it was just something his enemies well, said. I know the original source, it's just that I can't get a hold of it. Oh, awkward. Yeah, I know. Basically, it's written in this book which is about this whole saga that I'm going to talk about. Yeah. Um, but all I, I couldn't get any record, any copies of that book. I could only find reviews that people had written of it. Right. Like scholarly reviews, yeah. you know? But they don't have this particular, thi- this particular passage in it. Understandable, because I'm assuming this is like a side note. Uh, yeah, pretty yeah. much, yeah. Jack Want's political and commerce connections kept him very wealthy, but despite this, he was known to be unambitious. Uh, he even turned down the possibility of being Australia's premier in 1889. Okay. But the thing that he did want was prestige to go along with his wealth. He had helped found the Royal Sydney Yacht Squadron in 1862. <laughs> Why is it called a squadron? I don't know, but it's amazing. Why isn't it not a yacht club like everyone else? I know, but, you know, they wanted squadron. I love it. Go for it. Fine. Uh, he decided that he was going to boost his prestige with his fellow wealthy yachtsmen, and so he was going to acquire this new fancy yacht from Britain. Okay. Not only because, you know, we're famous for our boats, yeah. but I think it's also a little bit like I'm able to go this far yeah. to get this the best possible boat and bring it back to Australia. Yeah, I get that. It's kind of like, oh, it's fancy because it's from England. Exactly, kind of yeah. It's imported, don't mm. you know? Why can't the boat just come to him, though? Well, because he hasn't actually picked out a boat yet. Right. He's going to Britain in order to basically shop around. Oh, fancy. And while he's shopping around, his eye was caught by a boat called the Mignonette, which is a French word meaning cute or adorable. Yes. Yeah. Which (laughs) I just love that. 
Uh, it was a 52-foot, 20-ton racing yacht, and it was actually built in 1867. So it's getting on a bit. Yeah. Which is probably why he only had to pay £400 for it. Okay. Which, I mean... That sounds reasonable for your reasonable. fancy yacht. Yeah, exactly. But of course, he has a problem because he's got to get it back to Australia. It's a boat. It is a boat. It is not a boat designed for long treks okay. out at sea. It is an inshore boat. Yeah, that's fair. I think yeah. that um, nowadays people do this thing where they take yachts to places they want to sail around a mm. bit, but then they have proper crews to take them elsewhere. Yeah. Like you don't sail the boat the whole way. Yeah. Also, Jack definitely wants to travel in style and luxury and comfort. Mm. And this isn't that. Like... We'll get later on to how long this journey is, but I mean, you just have to know it's Britain to Australia. Yeah, it's a long way. It's a long way, and he is not going to do it on a yacht that is not designed for it. So can you put it on some kind of yacht carrier and have it carried by a bigger yacht? I don't know. What he decides to do is he's going to hire a crew to sail it back. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. He hires 31-year-old Captain Tom Dudley... And he paid him £100 with the promise of another £100 once the boat was delivered. Okay, but Tom Dudley could totally just steal that boat because then he'd have an additional £200. (laughs) I mean, I suppose so, but that would be the end of his career. I suppose, but this guy's in Australia. No one will know. I'm pretty sure he could send a message. Yeah, I know. There's probably telegrams. <laughs> He's also, he is a maritime lawyer. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you don't point. want to get involved with him in that way. Sorry, I've been spending too much time with year sevens who've been thinking of creative ways around stories. Fair enough. Well, no, Captain Tom Dudley, he's a pretty good man. He's well-respected and he's well-liked in his home port of Tolsbury in Essex. Okay. And he was paid this, frankly, ridiculous sum. Yeah. But this was also because Jack basically was like, here's the money, I'm going to go, you sort everything out. Wow, okay. So part of that money is for him to hire additional crew and buy supplies and also make repairs because the mignonette is, yeah, it's not in amazing condition. Oh my God, that's got to be, most of that money is just going to go on food, surely, because it's such a long way. Well, true, but Captain Dudley basically worked out and was like, I'm still going to make a load of money from this. Okay. And he really needs that, not because he's in like a bad place, but because he wanted to sort of maintain his status as an upstanding captain. Mm. He's got a wife at home who's a local school teacher. They have three children together. That's cute. Yeah. So he wants to, you know, make sure he's got the best to provide for his family. Sure. Uh, He was also known as a very religious man and he ran a dry ship. Oh, wow. There was no alcohol on board. Yeah. And this made it a little bit difficult to get a crew. Yes. Because not only do you have to contend with the fact that you're going to be sailing quite a long way for quite a long time Mm -hmm. in a boat that's not really designed to do that. Yeah. But also you're not going to have any alcohol to go along with it. And you're probably going to have a lot of prayers to do. I mean, I've heard about people running dry ships and it not going well before. Um, When I talked about the man who inspired Robinson Crusoe last week, Alexander Selkirk, the importance of alcohol on on the ships was so great that they had a daily allowance of this particular drink that was basically 
beer with rum in it. Nice. He actually had a spe- <laughs> like one of the things he had on his desert island was his pot, which had a whole little verse written on it about the importance of this drink. Amazing. <laughs> well, none of that on Captain Dudley's boat. Oh God, no. So it was a bit difficult to hire the rest of the crew. And the mignonette itself was small, light, designed for inshore, not long-distance travel. Mm -hmm. And this journey was to be 16,000 miles and take 120 days. And not just that, it was going to have to go into difficult waters such as the Cape of Good Hope. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. We haven't got the... um, uh, Not the Suez Canal. Yes, the Suez Canal. We haven't got the Suez Canal yet. no. Eventually, he was able to hire three other crewmen. Edwin Stevens, Mm a 37-year-old father of five and very experienced sailor. Ned Brooks, a 38-year-old sailor and friend of Captain Dudley, whose intention it was to actually emigrate to Australia. Oh, well, that's useful. I believe he also had a wife and children, but I couldn't find out exactly how many. (laughs) But he was like, I'm going to Australia. Don't wait for me. Well, no. So there definitely was something going on there, but... History has actually recorded less about Brooks than some of the others, and we'll get to why later on. Okay. And finally, they had a 17-year-old orphan called Richard Parker as the cabin boy. Okay. That name is ringing a bell. It, It definitely will be ringing a bell, and we will get to why later. Okay. Now, before they could leave, Captain Dudley inspected the ship to basically take stock of how much repairs needed doing. It was worse than he thought. Okay. A number of the timbers were completely rotten and needed replacing, and there were just more problems with the ship than he had anticipated. Now, not wanting to dip heavily into his potential profits, he kind of made a few repairs. Yeah. Like, enough to make it all right. But not enough to please Alexander Selkirk, who would stay behind on the island. Oh, no, definitely not. And also... Probably not enough to please the Board of Trade either, oh, who God. hesitated about clearing the boat as seaworthy. Yeah. It took, I think, a couple of extra weeks of negotiation before Captain Dudley was able to convince them that either the boat was fine or it wasn't worth arguing with him. Right. He was going to leave. Okay. I am worried for these men. You should be. I'm worried for their children. You should be. And I'm worried for this 17-year-old orphan. You really should be. Okay. (laughs) On Monday the 19th of May, 1884, the Mignonette finally launched and began its journey. Okay. The first few weeks went really well. The winds were favourable and the crew got along really well with each other. Good. They stopped at Cape Verde off the coast of Senegal on June 8th in order to pick up fresh supplies. Mm -hmm. And in order to continue to follow these favourable winds and to avoid traffic, the mignonette was taken away from the well-travelled shipping lanes. Oh, God. Yeah. For almost another month, though, things went well. Okay. They made good time. They were probably going to get there earlier than they needed to, which meant that, you know, they'd have extra supplies that they could sell, getting more of that sweet profit. Amazing. On July 3rd, they were about 1,600 miles northwest of the Cape of Good Hope. Okay. And about 680 miles from the nearest landmass. I'm so worried about them going around the Cape of Good Hope. Well, you don't have to worry about that because at this point they were becalmed. Oh, God. But Davy Jones, though. Davy Jones? Yeah, isn't it... Isn't it... Um, 
the Cape of Good Hope where people see uh, the Flying Dutchman. Oh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Well, they're not going to see that. Okay, good. Uh, for the listeners who don't know, being becalmed, basically, there's no wind. They, yeah. they can't go anywhere. The ocean is basically flat. Well, the good news is they're not going to get swept off to Jamaica or whatever kept happening to all of our people crossing the Atlantic. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now, this situation lasted for two days before the winds picked up again. Okay. And they picked up further. Oh, no. And further. Yep. Until the ship was in the middle of a violent storm. Oh, God. Captain Dudley gave the order to heave to, which basically means to go below decks. Yeah. And wait out the storm. As Richard Parker was sent below to make the tea for everyone, a huge wave hit the ship and punched a hole in the leeward bulwark. This was fatal to the ship. This is essentially, we have minutes before this ship sinks. Oh, God. So Captain Dudley gives the order to abandon the mignonette and to retreat to the lifeboat. Okay. Which was a flimsy, and by Mm. flimsy, I mean it was a quarter of an inch thick. Mm Mm-hmm. 13 foot long craft I know where I've heard Richard Parker before mm-hmm. I know you do but shh I'm not allowed to say you can if you want it's the name of the tiger out of Life of Pi yes it is with good reason okay well sort of I mean well yeah. in the book it's because they get the hunter's name and the tiger's name yeah. mixed up isn't it yeah so the tiger's called Richard Parker yeah but and he's on a lifeboat he is definitely named after this character yeah With minimal time, they gathered what supplies they could, but the powerful winds were against them, and much of the food and all of the fresh water was lost in the escape. Oh, God. They managed to grab some navigation equipment, and Dudley and Parker each managed to grab a tin of tinned turnips. (laughs) That was it. That was all they managed to bring on before they got into the lifeboats and the mignonette sank. Oh, my God. So this situation is dire. Yeah. Like, it's pretty much as bad as it could be. They were in a small, light boat that wasn't in the best condition itself. Yeah. And they were far from the shipping lanes where they might have hoped for a quick rescue. God, that guy really should have spent more money on repairs, He really should have done, yeah. The first thing the crew did was to construct a makeshift anchor. And this was to make sure that the lifeboat would stay steady and head into the waves rather than be buffeted about. Okay. Which I hadn't actually thought about before, but... uh, I didn't realise you could use anchors like that. No, neither did I. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, it's one of their main purposes. As night fell, they were attacked by a shark. (laughs) What? Yeah. They were attacked... How? I don't know. It's very hard to find out specifics about this. All I heard was basically a shark attacked them and would not leave them alone. Okay. They ended up having to take the oars of the lifeboat and basically beat the shark whenever it crested. Oh, God. In order to get it to finally go away. Oh, right. Okay. So I guess the idea is like the waves are still pretty high and the shark is like, hello. Yeah. Hello. (laughs) Quite possibly. They're like, oh, God. Well, they do manage to send the shark packing. Okay, good. On July 7th, two days after the sinking of the mignonette, they opened the first tin of turnips and divided them up. Oh, God. Rationing them so that they would last for two days. I'm assuming these tins are, like, normal tins. Yeah, they are not big. That is not much turnip. No. And turnip is not filling. No, it is not. But on July 9th, they had a stroke of luck when Brooks spotted a sleeping sea turtle. 
I know. But understandable. They killed it. Yep. And harvested the meat and the bones, giving them an extra three pounds of meat each. Okay. Which, at this point, when you've had nothing but a bit of turnip in the last, like, four days. Oh, God. That lifeboat must be feeling a bit close at this point. A little bit, yeah. It's only 13 foot long and there are four of them. Yeah. But, yeah, that extra three pounds of meat must be like a feast. Yeah. This, along with the second tin of turnips, kept them going until the 16th or possibly 17th of July. Good God. Now, remember that they had, like, they'd got into the lifeboat on the 5th. Yeah. Like, that's actually incredible. It is pretty incredible. But the problem they had was the water situation. Mm. Because, as I said, they hadn't managed to bring fresh water onto the boat. They had, using their oil skins, tried to collect some rainwater. Yeah. But it wasn't there wasn't enough rain for them to actually you know slake their thirst yeah they tried to drink the blood of the sea turtle but it had become contaminated by seawater oh but also drink the blood of the sea turtle sounds so rock and roll and i don't know why it does doesn't it (laughs) so of course by july 13th they had begun drinking their own urine yep bear grill style yeah Once the food had run out, Captain Dudley brought up the suggestion of one of the customs of the sea. And this is the custom that caused trouble for the legal system in Britain. Right. The custom of cannibalism. Oh my god. Captain Dudley suggested they draw lots to see who would be killed and eaten. Now, this custom goes back, like... As far as we have history, basically, like we have records of the of this happening to ancient Greeks. Okay, really? Yeah, it was common knowledge. Uh, even at this point in the in Britain, like people knew this was a thing that happened at sea, mm. and it was kind of it was kind of believed that because it was such a known about custom that this was almost like a legal protection. Right, okay. There, there was actually good grounds for this because there had been previous cases of people, you know, getting shipwrecked, having to eat someone and then going home and the courts basically going, you killed and ate someone. Yeah. And they're like, customer the CEO. And they're like, ah, oh, you got us there. You got us there. You're good to go. Right, okay. So it's one of those things that's not actually legal. It is definitely not legal. But it's like... It's like the idea I talked about ages ago when I was talking about um, the Black Tudor people. Yeah. Where technically people believed strongly enough that this was the law, that yeah. people couldn't be slaves in Britain, mm. that it kind of was the law. Yeah, pretty much right. that. Now, Stevens and Brooks both objected, saying that the situation, while dire was not so bad yet that they had to resort to cannibalism. Okay. Richard Parker did not object because he was already becoming weak. Oh. And over the next few days, he became seriously ill. Now, he was the youngest of the crew, as we said. He was also a very inexperienced sailor. Right. This may well have been his first time at sea. That makes sense. He's very young. He is very young. And as such, one of the things that he didn't know was don't drink seawater. Oh. So at night, he had been drinking seawater to try and slake his thirst. Oh, no. This had given him diarrhoea. Yeah. And thus he became more dehydrated. 
At this point, he was delirious, drifting in and out of consciousness. And on the 23rd or possibly 24th of July, eight days after they had last eaten, Captain Dudley once again brought up the option of cannibalism. Right. Now, Brooks objected. He basically said, I'm not going to have any part of this. But Stevens, who himself was growing weak, was coming round to the idea. And they were kind of about to prepare to draw lots in order to see who would be killed and eaten. Okay. And this was kind of the old tradition. This was generally what would happen. Um, There were obviously lots of accounts of people in higher ranks on ships just manipulating things to make sure they never got the short straw. Yeah. But it was generally considered that this is what happens. Right. I mean, I guess that makes sense. It does. But there's a bit of a twist with this because Richard Parker was already on death's door. Yeah. And Captain Dudley reasoned that he, Parker, should be the one to die. Parker was the weakest, closest to death, and, unlike the other three, did not have a wife and children waiting for him back home. Oh, that's horrible logic, though. I mean, it is. Just because he's a kid. I know. I know. But at the same time, it does make sense. It does make sense. It's just sad. But I mean, it is. It's this whole situation. Like, it's the the dreadful algebra of necessity. Yes, exactly. Necessity is a word that will come into play very heavily later on. So Brooks sat in the other end of the boat, basically as far away from the others as possible, basically going, I don't want to be part of this. Yeah. But he also didn't object. He basically said nothing and just went away. Yeah. Stevens held Parker down and Dudley said a small prayer before slitting the young man's throat with his penknife. Dudley and Stevens fell on the body immediately, drinking his blood and eating his flesh. Oh my god. Brooks was unable to resist and soon joined in the macabre feast as well. Oh, that's so grim. Yeah. Like, I can understand, but yeah, that's so grim. Oh, I know. Richard Parker's body kept them fed for another three days, but by the fourth day, they had no more food and hope was fading. On the 29th of July, 24 days after first escaping in the lifeboat, the sailors caught sight of the sail of another ship. Okay. A German freighter called the Montezuma, which was on its way back from Chile, sailing to Hamburg with a shipment of nitrate. The Montezuma caught sight of the lifeboat and went in for the rescue. Brooks was able to climb aboard, but Stevens and Dudley were both so weak that they had to be hauled on board by a rope. Mm. They were described as having wasted bodies, blackened lips, and swollen limbs. Oh, God. But when they were on board, one of the first things that happened is that Captain Dudley immediately spoke to Captain Summonson of the Montezuma and told him everything that had happened with Richard Parker. Wow, okay. He he begged Captain Summonson to allow them to bring the lifeboat on board along with what was left of Parker's remains, which was a rib and a little bit of flesh. Oh my god. Dudley wanted to bring those remains back so that he could receive a Christian burial in England. A month later, on September the 6th, the three sailors arrived in Falmouth in Cornwall. When they arrived, they made sure everyone knew what had happened so that Richard Parker could be buried in the appropriate manner. They also reported the matter to the authorities. Under the Merchant Shipping Act of 1854, they were legally obliged to report the sinking of any ship. 
But they went further and also made sure that they had reported the death and cannibalism of Richard Parker. Okay. This is really interesting because they are in a really horrible position. Oh, yeah. But they are going very, like, above and beyond to make sure that it is known about and they're not sort of hiding it at all. Yeah, there are... A lot of assessments about the character of these men in the notes on the trial, and I'm not going to read those out because a lot of it is in 19th century legalese. <laughs> okay, great. And it's not easy to read. Yeah. But the the people prosecuting them were really damning, and we'll kind of see where they got that from. Okay. But to me, it does sound like these were men who were pretty horrified by what they had done, but also, you know, knew that it was necessary yeah. and were going to do everything they could, if not to make it right, then at least, like, present a sort of justice. Yeah, I guess it's sort of, they're trying to fit in with their own Christian ideals. Yeah. Like, this man must have a Christian burial, but they know that they need to do things like tell the truth in order for that to happen. Yeah. But, counterpoint as well... They also believed that they were legally safe. So telling people may not actually be that much of a risk. Well, okay, (laughs) fair. But also legally safe is kind of different from socially safe. Socially, sailors in this position actually found that public totally understood. Really? Yeah. Wow. It is this weird thing that basically this idea of the custom of the sea, as I said, it was known about. Yeah. So people were like, fair enough. If I were in this situation, I'd have eaten that boy too. Okay, fine. So really, it seems like an act of bravery, but it's it's almost a bit of a formality. Right, okay. So they're just doing the appropriate thing and letting HR know. Exactly. Okay. It's it's kind of it, it may well be that. I right. I don't entirely believe that, but it is a possibility. I just think it's very interesting. Yeah. Sort of just from a modern perspective. Pe- oh yeah. I can cuz I guess we see a lot of films where people have done something that we feel they should feel guilty about and mm. then they come back and just feel guilty about it and never talk yeah. about it again until it comes back to bite them. Yeah. Whereas here they're like, "Hey, we killed a boy and ate him." <laughs> it's really important you know this. Also the boat sank. <laughs> Thank you for rescuing us. We ate a boy a few days yeah. ago. <laughs> Here he is, presents a rib. <laughs> a rib and a bit of decayed flesh on oh the end. Oh, God. So grim. What did you do with the rest of his bones? They ate them. Oh, God. Yeah. Mr. Cheeseman. No. <laughs> can't just say no before I properly started the sentence. Yeah, so you started the sentence, Mr. Cheeseman. That's not a way to start a sentence. <laughs> Mr. Cheeseman was the shipping master of the local customs house, and he was the first official to hear their account. And he basically decided to bump it up, send it to the Board of Trade, because Mr. Cheeseman didn't really care much about the story. (laughs) He didn't care? No, Mr. Cheeseman was known of being kind of a bit of a rogue. He was basically only interested in stuff that could make him money. Oh, I see. And there wasn't any money to be made out of this. He was known to, like, turn a blind eye to smuggling and prostitution and that in the area. I mean, fair enough. But I guess in terms of interest, I would at least expect him to be like, wow, that's fascinating. (laughs) I didn't care. He's not going to make any money. (laughs) Well, the Board of Trade, upon receiving the account, were not sure of what to do. (laughs) Okay. Because they weren't sure if this was now a criminal matter because they had specifically murdered this boy. Yeah. 
they forwarded the case to the Home Office. But the Home Office received it on a Friday. Oh, no. And it would be several days before anyone would read it. (laughs) But even though the wheels of justice turn quite slowly, it didn't mean that the men were completely off the hook for the time being. Right. Because someone else was present when the story was officially told. And this was a man called James Laverty, who was a sergeant in the Falmouth Harbour Police Force. He was a strict Methodist, and he was horrified by the story he was hearing around town that sailors had appeared who had eaten a boy. Yes. So he... But he's not a sailor, so he doesn't get it. No, exactly. But he also, he's a very devout by-the-book person. Right. So So he's like, God says, do not kill. Yeah. Done. So he demanded that he be part of the hearing uh, alongside Mr. Cheeseman. Okay. And... Laverty was horrified by what he described as a story told with such enthusiasm and in such detail that it bordered on the unseemly. Ooh. He also asked Dudley to hand over the knife he had used to kill Richard Parker, which Dudley did, but said he wanted it back as a reminder of what had happened. Okay. Now, this could be taken a couple of ways. It could be considered that he wanted something to make sure that he didn't forget what he had had to do. Yes. But Laverty saw this as a grisly souvenir. Yeah. And that it demonstrated that Dudley was proud of what he had done. Yeah, he's like, I killed a boy and I want to kill again. Yeah, exactly. I'll never forget the delicious taste of human flesh. (laughs) Mmm, long pig. (laughs) So James Laverty went through the local channels to try and obtain an arrest warrant for these three men. Fair. Because they had committed murder. Yeah. The head of the magistrates was Henry Lidicott the mayor of Falmouth, who actually did not want to give the warrant because public opinion, as I said, was very much on the side of the sailors and arresting them would probably cause some uproar. Yeah, and Falmouth is a sailing town. Exactly. So instead, he gave Laverty permission to hold Dudley and Stevens, uh, the two who had been enthusiastic in the cannibalism. Right. But not to arrest them. So it's like a very weak compromise where it's like you can't arrest all three, but you can hold these two while we make sure they're not about to eat anyone else. So it's like, it's not an official arrest. We just need you to stay with us for a bit. Yeah. Just to make sure that all the 17-year-old boys in Falmouth are safe. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So the three sailors were at a celebratory dinner thrown in their honour when Laverty arrived and arrested all three of them. Oh, no. Because he had gone to higher sources. Yeah. And the resulting kind of confusion, he somehow managed to obtain permission to hold all three of them until the Home Office returned a verdict. But Brooke was unenthusiastic. I know. Well, he still, you know, drank that sweet blood. I guess. Delicious blood. Goddamn vampires. By Wednesday, the case had gone through the Home Office's channels. But the officials didn't know how to deal with it, so they bumped it higher. (laughs) I love all these people who are like, not my problem, mate. Yeah. It went up to the Home Secretary himself, Sir William Harcourt. Right. And he was like, I don't know. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Bump it up to the Queen. Well, no, he did know because he was sick of this being a legal problem. Right. He decided he was going to settle the matter of cannibalism at sea once and for all. Was this a problem that he had kept having to deal with? I don't think he had, but I did find in uh, the 19th century, there were at least seven cases heard by the Home Office 
of cannibalism at sea. Whoa. Yeah. That feels like it's too many. It does feel like it's too many. I think you've just got to remember how much yeah. shipping was going on. We've got to remember this was back when we owned a quarter of the globe and had to yeah. send ships and stuff like that. But nine still feels like... Seven. Oh, sorry. I don't know why I thought... <laughs> don't bump it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, seven still feels unless, too many. Unless you did a couple that we don't know about. <laughs> yes. I am a Victorian cannibal. Mm. I'm a Wendigo. You're That's a Wendigo. how I live so long. Yes, there we go. So, Sir William decided that he was going to be firmly on the side of the letter of the law. Okay. So he had the three men officially arrested and a trial date was set. Okay. But, as I say, public support was very much still on the side of the sailors. And the owner of the curiosity shop in Falmouth, a man called John Burton, actually paid the three men's bail. Wow. Which collectively was a thousand pounds. Whoa! It was four hundred pounds for Dudley and Stevens each, and yeah. two hundred for Brooks. Because at this point, everyone just seems to be like, "You're not as responsible." Yeah, which is so interesting because this is entirely based on what they've said. Well, they all agree; like their stories are all the same. Yeah. And I guess it's the fact that Brooks didn't actually take part in the murder. Like, right. Stevens held Parker down while Dudley killed him. Right. Brooks was in the other side of the boat. Yeah. Okay, so he's not actually responsible for the death, just the cannibalism. Yeah. But right. he's also semi-responsible because he also didn't He didn't intervene. do anything about yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. So it's all a bit tricky, but everyone is basically agreed that, you know, Dudley and Stevens are more guilty than Brooks is. Okay. Not only this, though, like, pu- talking about public opinion, not only this, Daniel Parker... Richard Parker's brother Ooh. met with the three men and made a point of publicly shaking the hands of all three of them. Oh, wow. He was basically like, I understand. I don't hate you for this. Wow. I know how awful this must have been. That's such a big move. Because, I know, right? I mean, since they were orphans, I'm assuming that might have been his only family. Yeah, quite pro- probably. Yeah. Yeah. God. I know. It's pretty amazing. And it just goes to show the level of public support. Yeah. Which we can also see because Henry Lidicott was right to be wary of arresting the men. After they were released on bail, Lidicott was public enemy number one. Oh. The responses ranged from mocking songs made up about him to death threats. Oh, God. Well, people never change, do no, they? No, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> people were sliding into his DMs. <laughs> Sir William Harcourt, however, was completely unmoved by public sympathy, and he did everything he could to make sure the men were punished. He installed as judge Baron Huddleston, who was an ally of his, and was known to bully juries into his way of thinking. Judge Baron Huddleston yes. definitely sounds like a Charles Dickens character he does, who doesn't is he? a judge. And a, a slightly dodgy and one. Bullies and bullies people. Yeah. 100% Huddleston. Huddleston. It sounds like a made up British name. Yeah. Harcourt also made sure that the case was brought against only Dudley and Stevens. Yes. Yeah. Now, there were a very good reason for this because if all three men had been put on trial, they could each claim the right to silence. Okay. And at that point, the state would have no case against them. Because right. the entire case is their confession. Yes. And if they don't... If they retract their confession. Yeah, if they retract it or if they just don't recount it in court, yeah, then the state has nothing. Oh, so they need Brooke to be a witness. Yes. Right. And Brooks is obliged to basically 
say what happened. Right. So it's actually, it's quite a good move on the part of Sir William Harcourt to make one of them talk, essentially. Yeah. Because if he doesn't talk, then he can be held in contempt. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's fascinating. It is, isn't it? So Brooks was made an unwilling witness against his friends. Dudley and Stevens' defence lawyers went in heavily on the defence of necessity. Yeah. Which is how many of these other trials had concluded and succeeded in defending. But Baron Huddleston shocked the court by announcing that he would not hear any defence by reason of necessity. Wow. And this is because the law officially did not recognise it as a justification for murder in any statute or legislation. Okay. The only time that it had been allowed had been in common law, so it had been sort of judge's discretion. Right, I see. So Baron Huddleston basically said, this is not a matter for common law and judges' interpretations. Nothing in our actual law says you can kill someone because you need to. (laughs) Okay. He also, having basically removed the defence's entire argument, he made it worse. Oh, Because he also insisted that the jury could return one of two verdicts. Okay. Now, I know what you're thinking. Guilty or not guilty, right? Right? That's that's what I'm hoping. No, you're wrong. Oh. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) They could return a, a verdict of either guilty or special verdict with no option for not guilty. Right. The jury returned a verdict of special verdict. Right, okay. In their statement, they said that it was clearly necessary for someone to be eaten, but that there was no reason that it could not have been one of the other men. Richard Parker was not dead, and it was there was no certainty that he would not live if he had been fed and watered. Right. If the men had drawn lots, as previously was yeah. the custom, then the situation might have been different. Okay. But Dudley and Stevens had specifically chosen to murder Richard Parker. That's an interesting argument. Yeah. So the whole point is that they didn't actually follow the previous rule, like, that you have to draw lots. And if they'd done that, then he might not have died. I think this is one of the reasons why Sir William Harcourt was like, right, we can sort this out. Okay. Because this is a slightly different situation. Yeah. So, I guess I hadn't seen it as a slightly different situation. Mm. I'd seen it as a much more straightforward situation. No, I know. I know. So had I. But in a way, they're right. There, There's no real evidence that Richard Parker wouldn't have survived if he had, you know, had food and water or, you know, flesh Eaten and blood. humans, yes. Yeah. So... The men were effectively found guilty, but not really. (laughs) Okay. So because of this, a panel of five judges was assembled to make their final decision on the case and sentence the men accordingly. Right. The judges agreed with the sentiment that Richard Parker did not have to die any more than any of the others. And they were also concerned that leniency could lead to necessity being used as a defence in other less genuine cases. Okay. So, they decided, after much deliberation, to sentence Dudley and Stevens to death. Whoa. Yeah. And this was a shock to everyone. Yeah, because everyone's been like, but this is what we assume the law is. The judges, however, did not put on the customary black hats, which led to some confusion. Right. Lord Coleridge, one of the judges, and I think kind of the head of the committee, as it were, 
he made a plea to Queen Victoria to invoke the prerogative of mercy. Right. Whereby the monarch can commute someone's sentence. Okay. Basically, could Victoria do that? Yes, she could. Wow. Yeah. Not only could she do that, she did do that. Oh. A few days later, it was announced that the Queen had invoked the prerogative of mercy and the sentence was reduced to six months imprisonment. Okay. Some people wanted them to have life imprisonment, mm. but it was basically considered that this was the best compromise. So there, there was officially a punishment, Yes, but it wasn't going to, you know do serious harm to Dudley and Stevens. Okay. I mean, that makes... This makes sense. So the whole point is kind of trying to stop people in future doing it. Yeah. But they're also aware that Dudley and Stevens weren't aware that this was going to be the ruling on exactly. it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So officially they've been sentenced to death, but it's with that sort of cop-out of, hey, but we can make sure that the Queen stops them from being yeah. killed. Okay. Which I think is probably the cleverest solution to it. Yes. Because it means that this can't be used as a defense in future. Yes. Because but, this is just yeah. the discretion of the queen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They thought about this. They really thought about this. Because, as I say, this had been a problem for some time. Mm. Because they didn't... No one really knew what to do about it. Yeah. So... God, if you were a judge who definitely sentenced those men to death, you'd probably be quite unpopular with oh, a yeah. lot of sailors because they've already gone... Like, the public have already said, we kind of think this is okay, but in the eyes of the law, it's not okay. So I think this is a really smart way around that. Yeah, I think this is, this is the thing. They basically were like, this is the way we can make everyone, if not happy, then all right. Right, yeah. When Dudley and Stevens re were released, it was May 20th, 1885, almost one year to the day that they first set sail on the Mignonette. Wow. Richard Parker... God, that went quickly. <laughs> I know, right? A lot of it was waiting for trials to happen. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Parker was given a tombstone at Jesus Chapel near Southampton, which was paid for with the money left over from Dudley and Stevens' defence fund. Okay. Now, he has an inscription, which I'm going to read out because there's some stuff on it that is... Very, uh, it's not very subtle. Okay. <laughs> so the main part of the inscription reads, Sacred to the memory of Richard Parker, aged 17, who died at sea July 25th, 1884, after 19 days dreadful suffering in an open boat in the tropics, having been wrecked in the yacht Mignonette. But what's more telling is that there are two biblical quotations at the end. Right. Though he slay me yet, will I trust in him. Job wow. 12.15. Okay. And also, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. <laughs> Acts 7.60. Wow. It's very Those much... Those are on-the-nose yeah, Bible quotes. It really is. Jesus. It is very much a, hey, everyone knows they didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Even the guy's brother knows this. Yep. Everyone be chill. Yep. And we're going to treat these people as though they are God-torturing Job yeah. for reasons. <laughs> so after this, Dudley and Stevens both enjoyed a certain amount of fame and a bit of notoriety as well. Mm. They actually had waxworks made of them for Madame Tussauds. <laughs> oh my god. But once the fame kind of died down a bit, Dudley decided he needed to return to work and he found it really hard to be employed. That's understandable. It is. I mean, in many ways, they, they didn't bring up 
Dudley's kind of negligence, but he was possibly responsible for the mignonette going down anyway. Yeah, and also, I guess the thing is, he had been given charge of this boat. Yeah. He'd been given quite a lot of money. He hadn't managed to do what he was supposed to do. Mm. And people died and he ate them. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> this is, like, the worst case scenario for yeah. what you want from somebody who might pilot your boat. Pretty much. Eventually... He had to write to Jack Wants in Australia, yeah, asking for some help. Oh, and to be fair to him, Jack did help him out. He got him brought over to Australia and helped him set up a business in Sydney. However, Dudley was still known by the nickname of Cannibal Tom. Oh, but I mean, maybe that's more like fun if you're in australia i don't know (laughs) he actually made history a second time oh because in 1900 when he died captain dudley was the first victim of the bubonic plague hitting australia (laughs) oh my god (laughs) (laughs) wow well god has spoken i suppose i suppose so uh stephen settled down near southampton and he supported himself through odd jobs but he basically found himself becoming dependent on alcohol and he oh, died no. in poverty in 1914. Yeah. Brooks obviously managed to escape jail. Yeah. And he spent time working on the ferries to the Isle of Wight until he too died in poverty in 1919. Oh my God. So really, no one came out of this well apart from Jack Want, who was just down a few hundred quid. But other than that, pretty good. I mean... I do kind of wonder, though, with people with this type of very physical job back in those Mm. days, is the ending always going to be that you die in poverty? I suspect so. Yeah. For for men of their class and profession, I can't imagine you're going to end particularly well unless, Mm. you know, you have a big family and one of them strikes it rich some way. Or you have a windfall or something. Yeah, exactly. So this is the thing when you sort of go, and they died in poverty, I think it's worth bringing up that that might not be because of the cannibalism, though. No, I think it might well just be that, you know... They were always going to die in poverty. A lot of people died in poverty. Um, (laughs) Apart from Dudley, who died of bubonic poverty. Well, at least it's interesting. I know, right? Now, of course, we've mentioned already uh, the connection of Richard Parker to Life of Pi. Yeah. And the case of R.V. Dudley and Stevens, R being uh, Regina, well, the way that legal cases are written, it's R.V. the defendant. Okay, so it's like the the king, which means the government. Exactly, versus the person. Okay. So R.V. Dudley and Stevens became quite a famous case and is still discussed. Okay. Um, like, obviously, it doesn't have quite as much legal precedent because, you know, we've moved on since then. But it does it does get brought up and people still study it because yeah. it's an interesting situation. Well, I've got to say that knowing that Richard Parker was cannibalized yeah. definitely makes me edge more towards the idea at, from the end of Life of Pi that... It was all people on the boats, yeah. which is, you know... Uh, spoilers for Life of Pi. It's, well, I mean, it's, it's not really. It's like no, it's the not. whole thing's sort of going through yeah. and questioning whether this is a way for our survivor, Pi, to, like, cushion himself from yeah. reality or not. I, I think that would make a lot of sense. I do have one more thing. It's It's not a legacy. Okay. It's possibly unique. In that time when history. Ooh. Drum roll? <laughs> no, don't. 
<laughs> don't don't do your own sound effects. I tried doing that last week. It didn't work. Oh. <laughs> what you mean going? Yes, work. absolutely. In 1837, almost 50 years before the mignonette set sail, mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe published his only novel. Oh my god, is this going to be a predictive novel by accident? The narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket was a story in which a young man is shipwrecked along with two others. After surviving on the ship's hull for some time, they are forced to choose lots for someone to be eaten. Mm -hmm. The one who's chosen to be eaten was the cabin boy. His name was Richard Parker. Oh my god, I love it when that happens. Projected into the past! No, <laughs> it's just a common name. It really is. Uh, so I got the informa- a lot of the information from this from the book Is Eating People Wrong? by <laughs> yes. Alan C. It's Hutchinson. It's been sitting on our table for a while and I've been concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been reading it in preparation for the law course and it's eight great legal cases that kind of shaped the modern day law yeah in various countries and ways um but the titular case of is eating people wrong is the case of rv dudley and stevens right and right at the beginning of that chapter hutchinson brings up that there are a remarkable number of richard parkers who went to sea and died in some way (laughs) yeah because richard's a common name and so is parker yeah but i do like (laughs) yeah edgar Allan poe because you know he's all always gothic and mysterious he just knows man he just knows but no no it is entirely a coincidence (laughs) but that is where we stand so i'm gonna say thank you for listening to that time when you can follow us on Twitter at that time when for and suggest episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. The very best way to support that time when right now would be to leave us a five star rating and a review on whichever app you're listening to this podcast on. It'll help spread our word to even more people and so they can hear about 17-year-old boys being murdered and eaten. Hooray! Hooray! Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in this podcast. And thank you for listening. Now go out, invest in eels, and make sure you properly repair your boats. And don't eat anyone. It's illegal now. (laughs) 